Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Keith Billick bringing you the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, although this is a different type of show. You heard me allude last episode that I was going to be profiling recent banjo releases and specific albums. Well, this is then going to be the first of what I call the freshly picked episodes. And you know what? The Typically, I've been a stickler for conducting all of these interviews in person. I think that maximizes the sound quality. I'm really proud of how this podcast sounds and sound quality is something that I look for in other podcasts. So conducting the interviews in person maximizes that, also just makes for a better conversation. So up to this point, I've been really lucky to be able to meet up with a lot of my banjo heroes and and the interview subjects of the podcasts, and it's gone really well. However, with the uh, current reality, I have a lot fewer opportunities to meet up with these banjo players to do the interview, so I am having to compromise on my on my rule about in-person interviews only. And I thought a good way to do that would be to, if I have to discuss things over the phone or the internet with people, a good thing to discuss would just be their their recent releases and at least allow them to also take advantage of the new reality by you know exposing people to their product when they can't tour and promote it themselves. I should also say that when I first came up with the idea of this freshly picked series, I had it in mind that it would just be a short episode, maybe 15 to 20 minutes to, to announce the whatever the musical project was that we were profiling. And, you know, just be a, a quick episode or maybe even a short segment within uh, my other episodes. And so far, I've conducted two Uh, interviews for the Freshly Picked series, and they've both gone about just as long as a full episode. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to roll with it because they've been great conversations and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And really the only regret that I have about these things is that I didn't look into doing it sooner because as you know, most of my interviews take on a, a aspect of the player's personal history and how they learned and their influences. And that's that's very interesting to me still, but it's it's really cool to see where the interview goes when you're focusing in on specific songs and specific recordings. So um, I'm kind of having a, a bit of an epiphany ab- about uh, the possibilities of this new format and also just the line of questioning that can happen when I drill into the specifics rather than just general open-ended uh, questions about the person's past. So it's all good, but I, I'm I'm happy to finally be coming around to this, and I, I hope you enjoy what the Freshly Picked series has to offer. All that being said, though, some things do remain the same, and one thing that is the same is that I am eternally grateful for all of you who have signed up to become Patreon supporters. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is a way of donating money to keep this podcast running and that can be done for as little as one dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and this podcast is fully funded by those patreon donations today we have one extra super special patron of the podcast to recognize that is duncan brady duncan has been playing for a while but he primarily uses the banjo to calm his nerves on a rough day and he finds that his daily practice really helps him 
uh, you know, re- refocus and have kind of a meditative effect. And that's awesome, Duncan. I use my uh, banjo practicing for largely the same purpose. And I, I do find it useful. And it's it's cool that you do too. So Duncan, once again, thank you so much for going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and helping support what I do. And that actually reminds me, I, I made a Facebook post about this, but I got to brag for a little bit. Um, and by me bragging, I'm really meaning to include all of you because I couldn't do it without you. But uh, this podcast just exceeded 100,000 total downloads. So I'm really proud of that milestone. Also surpassed 100 Patreon supporters and 750 members. There's a Facebook uh, group of Picky Fingers listeners. So if you're on Facebook and you're not a member of that group, uh, please request to join. I think I accept everybody and you only get kicked out if you, you know, have male enhancement products that you're trying to to sell online. But um, I, I encourage you to join that. It's a lot of fun. I post all sorts of banjo stuff. Other people contribute with their banjo contributions. It's a really fun and really cool way for me to interact with you listeners and uh, yeah, just really cool. If you're not on Facebook, the other ways to find me or track me down or communicate with me, if you're on Instagram, I'm picky underscore fingers or on Twitter, give me a follow. I am at Banjo Podcast. Or if you're just the uh, old-fashioned email type, I can be reached at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. debut album to be featured for the freshly picked series here on the podcast is the album 13 or so by banjoist nick hornbuckle i've been a fan of nick's for quite some time and mostly that has been the result of him playing for a long time as a member of john reichman's band the jaybirds john reichman being of course the fantastic mandolin player and uh composer but uh nick also writes some really cool tunes and that's entirely what is on this album. It's an all-original collection, and we're going to talk all about it, so I'm going to stop talking there. The only other notes I'll uh, share about him is we mention it briefly, but I just want to highlight the fact that Nick is a two-finger banjo player, and while he can definitely do some convincing bluegrass, there are portions of his music where you can definitely trick yourself into thinking that it's just a real... Uh, lilting, galloping style of claw hammer or something like that. And it's just a real interesting style and it's cool to keep that in mind as you listen to his music. The other thing I'll say is that <laughs> Nick outed himself as a professional coffee roaster. And you may have heard me mention it a few times on other interviews, but I'm, I'm into that as well. So the first five and a half minutes or so of this interview are composed entirely of coffee roasting tips and chat so if you just want to get on to the to the banjo and the music content skip ahead like i said about five and a half minutes once we start the interview here and that will get you past all the coffee talk and how many of you just did the saturday night live voice in your head the coffee talk i know you all did but uh here is nick hornbuckle and i discussing his recent album 13 or so 
you did catch my eye with this coffee roasting reference. I need to pick your brain on this real quick because <laughs> okay. I, I, I fancy I fancy myself as like more sophisticated than the average drip pot guy. I, I do the home roasting with the the hot air popcorn popper. I'm oh, sure you're yeah. probably familiar with that whole yeah. with that whole deal. Yeah. So what what do I need to know, or what's the next step that someone like me needs to take? What should I be doing? Well, it de- it depends on. See, that's kind of an open ended question. It depends on what you want to do because you can you can just go absolutely nuts. You can buy little electric and or gas fired. You know what they call um, what the hell they call them? They're not audition roasters, but they're little roasters that big roasteries will use to roast very small batches and it looks like mm-hmm. um it'll fit on sit on top of your your desktop and you can spend you know yeah. 500 bucks or something like that um i've seen people roast the beans in a cast iron pan in the oven i've seen people do it with the, right. with the popcorn popper like what you're doing um so in terms of how you're doing it the the method that you're doing you're using there's a couple different options other than what you're using but um in terms of the technique what do you what do you consider be the to be the best for like uh a step up in quality i do like that the popcorn popper seems to get rid of most of the chaff which what i what i've heard is that oven roasting will not really be effective for that right you you'd have to like yeah it would be an issue with that now I, i have to give you uh a caveat because this is not in my realm of expertise is small, single batch roasting like that. But Mm -hmm. um, what I would suggest is that if you're using the popcorn popper and you're turning out, you're producing coffee that you like, man, stick with that. There's no point in spending a bunch of money on it that you don't need to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I am happy with it. I guess, I guess what my main goal was, was to, um, not have to babysit it as much. And also we have, uh, you know, the winters and you have to do it outside because of the smoke. So uh, right. in the winter, it's kind of a drag. I didn't know if there was a, a simple solution, but um, no, we are we are quite happy with how it turns out usually. Yeah, there's you're going to have smoke no matter what you do. I mean, good Christ, I, I deal with so much smoke. I mean, I the, the roaster <laughs> that, that, that we use, I roast 60 pounds of beans at a time. And you would How not, much? 50, you said? 60, 60, 60. Oh, wow, wow, yeah. And so you would not, it's, <laughs> and every three At months- At least it smells good to, though, right? Uh, well, no, it smells like smoke. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's okay, let me, let me rephrase that. It's not like burning plastic smoke or burning tire smoke, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. still smoke and it's not good for you. So I always wear a, uh-huh. you know, a, a, a filtration unit on my- on my face when I'm dumping the beans, but, uh, you know, and the place that I work for, we have a, what's called an afterburner that actually burns the particulate in the smoke. Oh, okay. so when it, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've been around larger coffee roasters, but some of them kind of go, what shall I say? The le- the less expensive way. And they just drop their beans and then roast them and then dump them in the tray. And the smoke goes wherever it goes. And it can uh-huh. be it can be a lot of smoke. And if a lot of times in different towns and cities and counties and states, or whatever, they will have definite uh, EPA rules in terms of what you can, you know, you can't just go dump and smoke in the environment. That's not only is it not cool, but it's illegal. So anyway, sure. the, 
the folks that I work for have this big, huge uh, afterburner that's, uh, you know, gas powered like the roaster and it just burns the smoke, which is a really odd concept until you think about smoke is mostly little bits of particulate, which is why you don't want to breathe it in. And it just pulverizes <laughs> those things. Right. Yeah, mostly, but there's still there's still a bit of smoke that comes out, but nowhere near the volume that you get from 60 pounds of beans, especially if it's a real dark roast. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's just uh, I've gotten used to it. I've put um, sort of uh, health and safety protocols into my work routine and, you know, it's fine. It, you know, but getting back to your earlier question yeah it 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 does smell better than burning plastic but it's still smoke <laughs> yeah i like it maybe you know maybe it's just the scale it, it just adds a nice pleasant uh incensed kind of effect i guess oh for sure i mean if, when it's when so, it's on that scale so you're probably roasting a pound at a time yeah i mean not even that it's like a a quarter cup is all those uh, popcorn poppers can take. Oh yeah. Oh that, um, I, yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. That would be, make a big difference in terms of the, how much you might enjoy it smell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just an, and we do it outside. So it just kind of is a nice aroma in the air. So yeah, it's fine. Well, yeah, let's uh, get into the actual reason I, I wanted to talk to you. Sure. So for, for people who are aware of your music and and definitely this goes for me i've been a fan of yours for a long time they probably know you from your work with john reichman and the jaybirds are you a are you an original member of that group i know you've gone back a long time yeah i uh i am i am an original member and this is i think it's the fourth band that john and i have been in together well you've met him you played music with him yeah. He's such an amazingly great musician and he's a he's a really you know this is dumb to say but he's a very cool guy. He's very mm -hmm. smart and very thoughtful and you know my thoughts on musicians is that you can typically get a pretty good insight into their actual personality just by listening to him play. And he is what he's playing. I think that's is. probably right. Yeah. You know his it's very um you know, he writes amazingly great melodies. Uh, one thing that, that I will say about John that I think is very cool is that that guy can play just about anything. I mean, he can play circles around pretty much anybody you can think about. But when you're standing there on stage playing with him, he's a band guy. He's playing time. He's helping the band sound good instead of showing off and, you know. And that, that to me, just speaks volume. It speaks volumes mm -hmm. about his musicianship and his personality and just his overall aesthetic on the whole process of making music. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not meaning to gush, but he's in my like top three of favorite musicians. Well, that's, that's the thing. It seems like he's almost everyone's top three, at least for mandolin players, everyone, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to find anyone who who doesn't really dig what he's doing, but you're a part of that sound too. But uh, to fast forward here, we're, we're here to talk about your album 13 or so. And if I'm not wrong, is that your second solo album? It is. Yes. It's uh, I released an album in 2014 called 12 by two plus or minus one, which 
it's a collection of all-time fiddle tunes, you know, that I've arranged in the way that I play. But it's kind of funny looking back because I didn't mean for these album titles to sound like math equations. They just kind of... I was just going to say, I, I hope my listeners are uh, <laughs> are not transported back to algebra class. Well, you know, I mean, I was on that first album, the, the 12 by 2 album, I had got the tunes together and, you know, was ready to put it out and I didn't know what to call it. And a lot of times when people release albums, they will name the album after a cut on the record. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, you know, what am I going to call it? It just doesn't. And then I had a dream one night and in the dream, that was the name of the album, 12 by two plus or minus one. And so I don't know if you're familiar. And that, didn't, that didn't mean anything to you other than just that? Well, in the dream, it didn't. But um, are you a, have you ever heard of a guy named Brian Eno? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, he's yeah, got I'm a big Talking Heads fan. Yeah. yeah, well, he was in Roxy Music and he produced a bunch of YouTube albums and, you know, anyway, mm-hmm. he's one of his things and I'm no expert on Brian Eno, but one of his things is that you just kind of want to go with what's happening and uh, allow spontane- spontaneity and embrace mm-hmm. what you would think of as being mistakes. And I really like that as a way as to kind of frame certain things. So anyway, so I came up with this title and at 12 by two plus or minus one, I was thinking, what does that mean? I, you know, and then I started thinking about yeah. it and I realized that there's 12 tunes on the record. Most of the arrangements feature two people. Uh, it's played by a guy using two fingers on two different banjos and the plus or minus one is, well, sometimes there's three people and sometimes there's just me. So it, you know, it all kind of <laughs> ties up in, in, into a nice little subconscious bow. It was, you know, once I realized what it meant, it's like, oh, this is perfect. Interesting. Yeah, I... And, and had the album existed or have had you recorded it before that dream happened? Or oh, yeah, was this I mean, a, more of a premonition? Yeah, no, the album was done. It was, um, I had been, I live here in... Uh, Nanaimo, which is on Vancouver Island of British Columbia in Canada. And um, I've been working on recording uh, various tunes without any real deadline in mind. And uh, in like January or February of that year, uh, Steve Martin and the uh, Steep Canyon Rangers came to play at the theater, the big theater here in town. And I, I know a couple of guys in in uh, the Steep Canyon Rangers. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'd like to go see them because I'm a, you know, who, who doesn't like Steve Martin and those guys are a great band. I sure. thought, what, what a great combination. And so I thought, man, you know, I've got these tunes. I should get something together so I can at least give it to Graham. He may like it. And, you know, he may give mm-hmm. it to Steve and Steve may like it. You know, I don't know. Who knows? Steve's a banjo player. Sure. Yeah. So that sort of gave me a, a goal, like a, a time frame to get at least something together. So I got like six tunes together and I put it on a disc and I took it down. My daughter and I went down and saw him and the only guy at the record table was Nikki. So I gave him the disc and the, and the, I brought along a book of tablature of some of these tunes and, and that was, you know, Hey, great. Okay, cool. Seeing you. See you later. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so anyway, that gave me uh, just out into the ether. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that, that gave me uh 
a deadline. So I was thinking, well, I've got these six tunes together. I just need another six and then I'm done. And so I did the other six and then I was done. Excellent. Well, I guess, I guess another thing I was wondering is, so this is your second release after having played so long with, you know, professionally with John, was there something that happened with your writing or your career or just your outlook that made you want to start doing these solo albums? I mean, you've recorded a ton with, with the Jaybirds and whatnot, but, um, what made you want to transition into doing some of your own projects? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I know that we aren't going to go back into the backstory very much, but just a quick little aside, yeah, or, or is it, um, I've been playing banjo since I was about 11. And when I was about 15, I started playing electric bass. And when I went to school in Bellingham, I couldn't find anybody to play bluegrass with because I was just exceptionally lame. And I just laid down my banjo for 10 years and played bass. And I ended up playing bass in a rock and roll band in Seattle in like the late eighties, early nineties. And, you know, mm -hmm. we knew all those dudes in those bands and, you know, mother love bone and Pearl jam and all the Alice and Jane, all the grunge. And, yeah. Oh man. And, uh, we, we opened up for all those bands and it was a very interesting scene to be in because it was just like, there was blood in the water and the sharks were descending, you know, the record companies were there. Uh -huh. But anyway, how that relates is that the band I was in called son of man, uh, wrote and played original music and it was we really valued that very highly okay so fast forward a few years pick up my banjo again start playing bluegrass and i realized that at least in the kind of circles i was playing in at, in seattle um there just wasn't a much of a premium placed on original material and uh yeah. you know i because of my background or my history of playing rock and roll and playing original music, I, I really think that that's important to do. I mean, even if it sucks, I think it's really important to put your own thing into it because, you know, no one, as J.D. Crow says, no one is ever going to beat Earl Scruggs at his game. It's just not going to happen. I mean, because it's his game. Yeah. And so it seems to me that the goal is to create your game. Okay, so over all these years, I've been writing banjo tunes and so it got to a point where i had like you know 60 or 70 just on various hard drives and computers and all that stuff and i thought man if i don't do something with some of these now nothing's going to happen with them and they're just going to disappear which is you know whatever who cares it's just a, me a banjo player and you know it's just music but it's kind of nice to be able to uh, see a certain piece of music through to its final expression, if that makes sense. Yeah, just have something to have something to show for all the time that you've put into it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I don't want to get too too philosophical about it, but I don't mind doing that. But you know, I think that it is really good to put, and I don't want to be too sound too big headed, but I think it's really good to put works of art out into the world because it's. Mm -hmm. the world seriously needs it now. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it kind of goes back to the, to the Eno thing. You said, even if it sucks, it's worth being original. And it, it goes back to what he said, just, just go with what you're feeling and you hope people will like it. And if they don't, that's fine too, I guess. Yeah. You know, that, that was one of my goals with this, with this recording, uh, the, the 13 or so album is I wanted to create 
Well, it's a, it's a, you know, basically it's a, it's a memory for me. And if other people like it, that's great. But I, I, I did it mostly so that I would like it because, uh-huh. you know, all the other recording projects I've been involved with Jaybird stuff, and I've done a fair amount of studio work and all that. I've not been the person with the final say. Yeah. So it's, it's really nice being the person that has the final say. <laughs> And did it, did it meet your expectations in terms of you wanting to be happy with it and you wanting to like the music that you made? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, it's, it makes me realize that it, it must be interesting to have been someone like John Lennon or Paul McCartney or, you know, David Gilmore or Sting or anybody really well-known songwriter to listen to their material. It just gets to a point where, I mean, just speaking for myself, that all you hear is the things that you don't like. So hmm. that's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that it's, that it's rife <laughs> with problems. I yeah. think it's when I'm able to listen to it objectively, I'm very happy with it. I think it sounds great, but because I'm so intimately involved with it, I can play the album in my head without having to actually listen to it. If that makes sense. I mean, like note for note. So yeah, yeah. By the time it's done, you've you've heard every note on there a million yes. times. Yes. Well, I really dig it too, and I don't know if you remember. I responded after you, after I first heard it. I I gave you the comment that I thought it sounded a lot like soundtrack music. Oh yeah. And I hope you took that. I hope you took that as the compliment that I meant it to be. Oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. I absolutely take it as a compliment. Okay, good, because I, I felt a little validated when I went to your liner notes it, and I read about each of the songs that you wrote about. It seems like you come from a very visual place with some of these compositions, too. And uh, I guess that's kind of the same thing that I was trying to say, is that they, they're they evocative of, of a vibe or a place or a feeling or, or for you, mem- actual memories or... or well, things you know, that are meaningful to you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can't think of a higher compliment to pay a musician than to say, your music is evocative. I mean, <laughs> I would so yeah, much... I, that, I would, that's I would, what I meant by it, yeah. Yeah, I would so much rather have that compliment than, wow, you can really play fast. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's like, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's great. I, I appreciate that. And... But to be able to um, evoke an emotion or a mood and to another person is that's epic. That's that's what all. And I again, I don't mean to sound presumptuous, but that's what all art goes for, right? I mean, a painting or a sculpture or a movie or a poem or a book or whatever art form that you're talking about. That's what the goal is, is, is to produce that something in another person. So, no, I, I totally took it as a compliment. Absolutely. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. 
Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. Something that I get frustrated with is hearing instrumental records by, by players who I love, but it's really difficult to make an instrumental album that stays interesting throughout. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so no. Yes. Yes. And and I think uh, like I think you did it man. So is, was that something that you were aware of or have some sort of technique for attacking that problem? Man, you know, I really appreciate that compliment. That 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 means a lot to me because that has definitely been in the on the top of my list in terms of how I want to present the music that I write because I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh in terms of, and we're, we're getting into potentially problematic subject matter here, but I'll just go ahead and say what I say because <laughs> I, I really believe it and I really think it. And that is, is that I get the feeling sometimes that, um, okay, like for example, George Harrison is one of my absolute favorite guitar players. Uh-huh. And the reason that I like him so much is that that guy was able to create incredibly memorable parts to songs, you know, solos or riffs or something. And uh, a lot of people, typically musicians, will look at something like that and go, yeah, so what? What's the big deal? It's, it's only three notes. I don't get it. And the thing that they're missing, mm-hmm. in my opinion, the thing that they're missing is that most people aren't musicians and they don't relate to music in the way that musicians do, which is in a, can be typically in a real mechanical uh, and theory and mechanistic kind of way, you know, like, oh, you can play at 180 beats per minute. Wow, you can play all this stuff and blah, 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 blah. And most non-musicians just don't care. What they care about is, does it move them or not? And if it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. If it does, it can be one note. Right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, the, I'm, the I'm, quality I'm, of the, <laughs> the quality of the music isn't proportional to the challenge of executing it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so anyway, so back to answering your question in terms of the arrangement ideas and trying to create an album that you could actually sit and listen to, uh, the whole way through, I am really focused on that because I, while I would like to have my album appreciated by banjo players, I don't know that that's going to happen because it, it, they may or they may not. I don't really know. But I would like to have it appreciated by people that just want to listen to good music, if that makes sense. And so... Yeah, of course. I feel like in order to do that, you have to present, as Lester Flat used to say, a program of music that's interesting. That's not just the same thing. You're not just... You know, I'm not knocking people, but not just the key of B, 140 beats a minute every song. I mean, it's like, that's so boring to listen to unless you're a banjo player and you go oh that's so cool but for most <laughs> for most non-musicians they're just completely bored 
And I'm not interested uh -huh. in boring people. There's enough boring stuff. <laughs> There's enough boring stuff going on yeah. as it is. And, you know, um, it, you'll, you'll tell me if I'm going on too much, but uh, when I was a kid, and I still am a huge Beatles fan. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about their records is that, A, they're just, just hugely melodic, you know, just melodies, melodies, right. melodies, memorable melodies, simple melodies. And really interesting arrangement ideas that especially the further on they got in their career and it just makes that the music so much more interesting to listen to so i'm definitely influenced by by the beatles in that sense and other ways as well but in that sense of let's create a piece of music that's you know melodic and interesting to listen to and you know not just a math equation <laughs> yeah and uh i i guess maybe now would be a good time to like dive into a little more of the nitty gritty of the, of the album itself. Like I, I think something that also strikes me other than the, the soundtrackiness is that a lot of these tunes almost sound like you've heard them. Like they're, they're completely original, but they have such an accessible sound to them. I guess I'm, I'm thinking of like Wellesley station or, or Cleo bell. They're these like upbeat, energetic fiddle tunes and it sounds like any of the picking circles that any of us might have been in but it's a totally original tune and you and you captured that familiarity that those tunes possess I guess I don't know do you have do you have anything to say about what what writing those kind of tunes were like and and how you go about writing those those hooky melodies First of all, again, thanks, Keith. I really appreciate that. That is, again, that's a very high compliment because if a person is a writer, doing something like that is really challenging because, you know, on the one hand, you want to write something that is familiar enough sounding that people will go, oh, okay, I like that, but not so familiar that they go, oh, well, dude, that's just Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's a fine line to, to tread there. But, okay, so Cleo Bell in particular, when we first moved to the island, I was traveling back and forth between uh, Nanaimo and uh, Washington State and teaching lessons um, mm -hmm. on the weekends. And so I would drive down to the ferry and sit and wait for the ferry. And one time I got there... I got to the ferry uh, a little bit late, and so I had to sit there for two hours. So uh, anyway, so I was uh, sitting waiting for the ferry, and I you know, loved this double C tuning, and I was kind of monkeying around in double C and came up with the first little phrase of that tune, and I kind of set an assignment for myself, which was, I want to write a tune that starts on the five chord, because most tunes start on the one. Uh -huh. So I want to write a tune that starts on the five chord. I want to write a tune where in double C tuning, where you don't hear that low C until a fair bit into the tune. So it's not a big giveaway. And 
I want to write a tune. What was the third thing? Um, man, I'm kind of blanking. The chimes? On well, the chimes was kind of. I wrote the whole first half of the tune, and then I realized, oh man, I, I need a B part. <laughs> and and then the chimes just came in, and then I figured out how to harmonize it so it sounded interesting. Because if you just play those chimes as is with no interesting chords behind them, there's just not much going on. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. So so I sat there in the back of my car and just started monkeying around and just kind of free associating, and the tune just came together. I should record this right now so I don't forget it. And then I, of course, yeah, I played it all weekend between lessons, so I didn't forget it. And um, it's funny because uh, I can remember the first time I showed it to the Jaybirds. We were on tour in the southeast, and we were playing in um, this place in Tennessee. It might be called Jonesboro. I don't remember. And uh, we were playing this little club. We were getting ready. We were kind of backstage warming up, and I said, "Hey, you guys, I want to show you this tune." And uh, I played it through, and they all said, play it again. And I did, and they said, okay, that's really cool. What are the chords? And I said, well, let's try these. And they did, and they said, okay, let's play it tonight. <laughs> yeah. So it was like- Trial oh, by fire. Yeah, okay. I said, okay, I guess it's in the set. And, you know, that was in- Oh, man, that's that, great. That, that would have been like- in you know, 2006 or 2007. So anyway, and I, and I wrote it for my daughter, Cleo, who at the time was five or six years old. And, you know, she's, she's my darling. She's my sweetheart. And so when we get to, when we get to play that tune, I always, you know, uh, in my heart, at least I always send that out to her because, you know, is that a is that a common writing approach that you have? It, it sounded like you made rules for yourself about, starting on the five and you know all those things that you just described is that is that a common way that you compose um i use actually many different things uh i've that's one of them another one is just try a different tuning a wild tuning and see what comes out another one is um i've dreamed had dreamt had dreams of tunes and had to wake up and force myself to wake up and record it because I'll just say, I'll remember it in the morning and it's never there. Yeah. I never remember. <laughs> yeah. It. I've, I've done that plenty of times, but and uh, I don't have any tunes to show for it. As yeah. It I out. mean, so my suggestion, I, I, I don't want to be too bossy, but my suggestion is, man, you've got a phone, just record it on a memo just quickly because those things come and go so quickly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's actually a, a tune on a Jaybird's record called the homecoming that, uh, we were still living in Seattle. And, um, one night I had this dream and I was playing that tune. I mean, literally verbatim that tune in the dream. And I woke up and went into my office and recorded it quickly. Um, at least the melody and then went uh -huh. back to bed. And the next day or a couple of days later, got up and realized that 
Well, this tune could be played really nicely in open D tuning. And so we actually ended up uh, recording that as a duet with the banjo and the fiddle. Uh, and there have oh, been, cool. been a bunch of other tunes that I've dreamt. And I, I don't know if there's any on this record. But, you know, I mean... I, that's, that's, still an, that's still an amazing approach. And, and uh, yeah. It's, oh, I think that, you know, it's I such mean... A fleeting, it's such a fleeting thing that... You well, really got to grab it. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that, you know, when I was learning to play, I copied guys like Earl Scruggs and J.D. Crow. And uh, that's why it's, you know, I mean, that's the language that I naturally speak on the banjo. And so it's really difficult for me if, okay, if you wanted to set me a nigh impossible challenge, it would be this. Hey, man. Write a tune in open G tuning that doesn't sound like something Earl Scruggs would play. That is really <laughs> difficult because in open G tuning, I naturally gravitate towards that, that language. Uh-huh. And so, and so, uh, to me, uh, going into these different tunings sort of forces me to think about a melody instead of, you know, a bunch of licks or roll patterns or whatever. You kind of, or I kind of would default to in open G tuning, if, if that makes any sense. And just kind of letting my fingers and my ear kind of wander together to find something that makes sense instead of letting my lizard brain go to what it knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your muscle memory gets kind of canceled out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's, I just, I absolutely love um, just sitting with my banjo, usually without picks on, just kind of sitting and noodling and just trying to find phrases and bits of melodies and once i find something that kind of really resonates then i will if i'm smart paying attention i will usually record it just quickly on my phone and then i'll try to find something else and that's you know we haven't really talked about this and it might be out of sequence but if i could give any advice to anybody if they want my (laughs) if they want my advice to anybody who's interested in writing that is to when you're initially inspired to write something, my advice is, is to try to finish it then at that time, just have something, an A part and a B part. If you've got a C part, you know, a verse chorus and a bridge or something, because it can be really hard if you've got this amazingly cool A part to go back and write a B part that fits or comes close to matching or, you know, because the, the, the inspiration is not there. It's a different day, a different time, a different, you're in a different mood. You have a different blood sugar and you know whatever everything's different <laughs> yeah, and it's, I, and it, yeah and it's and it may not it may not work out well <laughs> i think i can speak not only for myself when i say that yeah it's real common to just have all these scraps of tunes everywhere in your brain that maybe someday will be something but man it sure would be cooler if they were uh tunes that you could play and record and perform right absolutely Hey everyone, Keith jumping in here. This is the part where I make sure you all know about elderly instruments, but that's kind of a silly thing because of course you know about elderly instruments. It's a world famous store catering to all of your banjo, guitar, ukulele, mandolin needs. They also have accessories, books and CDs. I actually just checked their website and they do carry Nick Hornbuckle CDs and tablature books, but you can also go there if you are a beginner of any age and you need to get started on the instrument maybe if you are looking for that next step up a good 
guitar to take on the stage or into the studio and uh, to up your skills that way. Or even if you are a collector of the rarest, most sought after stringed instruments, Elderly has all of that stuff. So you really need to check it out. I said they're world famous and that is true. We had visitors when I worked there come from all over the world just to look at the selection. However, if you are unable to make it to the Lansing, Michigan showroom, they do ship worldwide and the website has excellent photographs. We all know how hard it is to buy an instrument online. So they're there to provide you with all the photographs you need. If you want someone to hold the instrument in their hands and tell you all about it, they will describe it in every detail and make that process as easy as possible. So if any of that appeals to you, and I know it does because you're listening to this podcast, check out elderly.com. Uh, explore their inventory. They have all sorts of easy and hard to find items, family owned since 1972. And I'm proud to have been a an employee there and I don't hesitate to recommend them to you. Once again, that's elderly.com. To get back to something we were talking about earlier, I try to look at this, at what I'm doing specifically with the music that I'm writing for myself. I try to look at it as that I'm a songwriter and I know that I don't write lyrics because you know, writing lyrics is, man, <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a whole other, it's art a form. whole other art form. You know, I just, uh, just as a tangent, which I'm sure you've noticed, I like to go down. I watched yeah, it's uh, okay. No Direction Home, that Martin Scorsese picture about Bob Dylan. I just have such admiration yeah. for Dylan. I mean, it's just his ability to, to write lyrics is unparalleled, in my opinion. Uh-huh. But anyway, so yeah. when I'm writing banjo tunes, I'm trying to think of it in terms of a song and not just a bunch of banjo stuff. Because again, that gets back to the idea of, I would like my music to appeal to people who may not, who, you know, may actually think, you know, I kind of hate the banjo. <laughs> but if they, hopefully, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I would hope that if they listen to some of my music, they might think, oh, that's a banjo? I had no idea a banjo could do that. Well, on on that train of thought, let's, let's talk about a couple of the weirder ones. And, and I, I guess I'm specifically talking about, I mean, but this is what helps make the thing interesting to what I was saying. Like, I'm, I guess I'm talking specifically about, do you pronounce it Suki? Uh, Suk. Suk. Okay. And then yeah. also the, the farewell to the cowgirl with the pigtails. Oh yeah. Those, those get a little like further out than your like AABB fiddle tune, a little spacier, a little trippier, a little more yeah. production effects happening. I don't know. What do you what do you have to say about how you approached those and why you wanted to to write some something like that? Well, um, okay. So I'm going to talk about this in the order that I'm thinking of it. So it may not be in a real clear. I, I hope it's clear. But anyway, so one of the first things that I want to talk about is that I think that it's important to when a person releases a recording is to on the recording make a wide, as wide a lane for themselves as they possibly can. So as an example of this, on this record, on the one hand, you've got a tune called Hopping Harvey, which is, that's just a, an old time fiddle tune with just a banjo and mandolin. Yeah.
other hand, you've got Souk, which has fiddle effects provided by the amazing Trent Freeman and interesting production. I'm sorry, another tangent. It's an interesting thing to me is that when I look at, like for instance, uh, a tune like Hopping Harvey, that would fit in, I would think, pretty well on just a regular quote-unquote old-time record. But on that quote-unquote old-time record, it would be nothing but that. That's all that would be on that record because if it was anything else, it wouldn't be called old-time anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And then on an album that might have something like Souk on it, you would never hear something like Hopping Harvey, because it'd be like, what, are yeah. you some kind of, what, did somebody drop you on your head? What, that doesn't, yeah, you know. Yeah, and so uh, I'm trying to, on, an, on, an, on, the, on the album, without sounding too grandiose, make a statement like, I'm interested in music that goes from here to here, and not just mm -hmm. some narrow lane. And you know what, I've totally forgot what your question was, damn. <laughs> I, I guess just was it? Uh, oh, right. It was okay. a pretty open-ended. It was a pretty open-ended question. Right. Just, just so, drawing your attention to the weirder ones like that. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. And just so exploring what your what your approach was. Right. So so you had asked about a farewell to the cowgirl. Um, uh -huh. My my, uh, my mom passed away really unexpectedly in October of. 2016 and um, pretty devastating. And uh, uh, I had gone down to stay with my dad for as long as I could get away from work. And I had taken my banjo with me because, you know, I mean, in my life, my banjo has been a huge uh, source of solace. Mm -hmm. So um, I was down at, at my mom and dad's house and I was, you know, I was hanging with my, staying with my dad. And then I just went upstairs to just kind of, you know, try to get away, which is impossible. But, and I had my banjo and I, I really liked this, uh, sort of open F tuning. And I just kind of started monkeying around. That 
That tune, A Farewell to the Cowgirls, actually two tunes. That's where you get the 13. There's actually 13 tunes on the record, but 12 uh, tunes uh. twelve tunes on the track listing. Anyway, so, so these, these two tunes came out, and I recorded them and put my banjo down and went down and, you know, went to hang out with my dad, make him lunch or whatever we were doing. And when I did this record, I really wanted to put those two tunes on there because of what it meant to me. And uh, the fellow that plays fiddle on it is a guy named Trent Freeman. Great, great uh, Canadian fiddle player. He lives in Toronto and I think he might be near Nelson now. I'm not sure. And um, he plays in a in a band called The Fretless. And the guy that plays cello in that band is a fellow named Eric Wright. And Eric and okay. Trent, uh, Eric and Trent have a band called uh, Speaker Face, which is super cool. Um, ambient. Uh, it's, I don't know what you'd call it. Very cool music. Anyway, so I immediately huh. thought of those two guys. And I guess that that kind of gets back to that, you know, for my motivations for putting the record out, is it, uh, it's so that it means something to me. And, you know, I miss my mother very much and wanted to memorialize her in any way that I could. And that's one way. And, the first cut on the record is called Wellesley Station, which is named after the little town in, in North Idaho where she was born. And, you know, so it's, huh. you know, just kind of personal stuff, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, a nice tribute to, to send out there into the, to the universe. Yes. However you got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very cool. Uh, so before we finish talking about here, let's, you have a lot of collaborators on this one. You already mentioned a few of them. I don't know, just talk about some of the people who you got to interact with and just what their contributions were. Oh, absolutely. Um, my experience in recording, for the most part, has been uh, the band, say the Jaybirds, will get together and rehearse on the road and get an album's worth of material together. Then we'll book a studio. We'll all sit down in the studio and record and, you know, then produce an album that way. And uh, I have a, it's not a state-of-the-art recording setup, but it works, you know, that is incredibly portable. It's a Mac Pro, you know, 2009 cheese grater and uh, an interface and a couple mics. And yeah. I use the Reaper is my DAW, which I absolutely love. And uh, so anyway, so how that relates is that, uh, you know, this whole album is self-produced and uh, I did not have the budget to even think about hiring a band to go into a studio. You know, I mean, am I going to pay 800 bucks to fly Trent out from Toronto to sit in a studio for three days? It's just, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like, you know, a third of my whole budget. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. so uh, how the album was produced was um, I recorded the banjo tracks to uh, not a click track, but to uh, a rhythm pattern that I put together. And then I sent these tracks around to different musicians and they overdubbed or they sent me back tracks and or variations for their parts. You know, I was very specific mm-hmm. about <clears throat> you'll play the solo in this part. And then if you could play some backup here, but for the most part, I was pretty much hands off, which kind of gets back to the whole Brian Eno thing, because at the end of the day, um, I was, I put myself in the position of having to assemble this 
album and, you know, try to make sense of the different things that people sent me, which, you know, everybody sent me great stuff, but some of it wasn't, didn't quite fit with other things that people sent. And, you know, I had to make some, sure. some executive decisions, which is, I absolutely love doing that stuff. Let's take a tune like Wellesley Station. So what I did is uh, I made a demo of it. And on the demo, I played a bass part on it on my guitar. And then uh, when it came time to do this record, I thought, wow, this is really a cool tune. I want to do this. So I recorded the banjo part. And then I recorded uh, a MIDI piano part, which was the bass part. And uh, then okay. I sent that to Trent first, I think. And he put a fiddle part on it. And then I think I sent that to... Uh, Patrick Metzger, who's the bass player, and he put a bass part on it. And then I'm good friends with a fella in Toronto named Ivan Rosenberg, who's a real great uh, dobro player and Klawheimer banjo yeah, player. Yeah, I've met Ivan. Yeah, I really like his what what he contributes there. Yeah, he's and he's a, a really man. I got to get a thesaurus. He's a really great uh, recording producer and engineer and just a general all around smart guy. Mm-hmm. And I'd been talking to him about you know, emailing him about doing this record. And, and I asked him if he knew anybody in that area that played acoustic, you know, bluegrass style guitar. He goes, oh, I got that, just the guy for you. And it was this fellow named mm-hmm. Daryl Paulson who plays in a band called the Slow Can Ramblers. And I'd never met Daryl. Oh, I, yeah. so, I, I still haven't met him in person. But, uh, so, oh, interesting. So I, uh, I haven't had the, what was there so far. And, uh, then Daryl came into the studio and overdubbed his part, which was just great. I mean, he's really, really great guitar player. And then the last person to record was John. I went over to his uh, place in New West, and we just sat down and recorded it. And then, uh, you know, I edited and mixed and whatever. But this kind of gets back to the Brian Eno thing, which is this kind of sort of a, a codicil to that, which is, you know, the idea of happy mistakes. And I am mm-hmm. so about that because, you know, th- these different musicians sent tracks to me that I would never have thought of, that I, you know, in my wildest dreams, it would never have been able to direct them to do. And because of that, it made that, the, the recording that much better, in my opinion. And yeah, that's I, why you hire them, right? Because you want them yes, to yes, con- contribute their expertise. Yeah. Uh, there's a tune on the record called uh, The Crooked Man, and I'm a huge fan of this band called The Lonesome A String Band, which is Chris Cool and Max Heineman and John Showman. They're from Toronto. Really great power. I mean, they are the the Canadian power trio, man. They're just... Yeah. And uh, the guy that plays fiddle in that band, John Showman, is really, really great fiddler, can play all kinds of different stuff. And I sent the track to him. And I just said, hey, John, just just make it greasy. He did, man. He, you know. Okay, so then moving on, let's see. So we've talked about John Reichman, who is, you know, I just am always 
so honored to get to play music with him and to have him on my records. And he just sets the bar so high that it's damn near impossible to reach it, but it's a goal. Um, yeah. And then uh, Andrew Collins plays mandolin on a couple cuts, mm -hmm. and he plays uh, in a band called Oh the Hogtown. Oh, I'm totally forgetting what the name of their band is. They're from Toronto, and he also has his own uh, trio called the Andrew Collins Trio. Yeah. Let's see. And then Ivan plays. Ivan Rosenberg plays dobro on a couple cuts. I mentioned Patrick Metzger, uh, who lives in Vancouver, bass player. He plays with uh, Jason and Ferris Romero and a bunch of studio work, and really, really super great bass player and you know i play bass so i am i pay particular attention to the bass and here's another tangent is that it just really cracks me up that in it, rock and roll bands and also in bluegrass bands is that when musicians assemble they'll a lot of times say well let's take the worst musician and put him on bass and that that's the last thing you want to do you want to put the best musician on bass because if you don't have a good bass player you got nothing you got absolutely nothing so yeah, I, he has some great contribution to this to this record. A lot of interactive parts, a lot of like reharmonization almost, I think. That I, I don't know if that's something that you wrote in or that he was just doing, but yeah, well, he 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 really brings it. On this uh on this album there are three bass players, which is kind of funny. Well, four counting myself, but I'm not actually on the record, but on one cut like say uh on 13 or so and on Souk the bass player is a guy named Joe Phillips who lives in Toronto as well. And this, this dude is a, uh, is a, is a, is a serious, I mean, he plays in the, I don't know what they call him in Toronto. Is it the Philharmonic? Whatever. He's a serious player. He plays with Jamie Stone and, um, you know, he's a classically trained bass player. And so okay. on, on the tune 13 or so, I actually wrote the bass part on the piano and Joe, because Joe is like, He's the consummate studio musician. I knew that if I sent him and say, it, here's the guide, can you play this? He would, and he just nailed it. Huh. Um, and then on um, The Black Dog, that's uh, Todd Phillips, who I've, I've known Todd for many years, and he's absolutely one of my favorite bass players. You know, he's just- Yeah, legend. He's been on so many great recordings. And, you know, he's another guy that's just a super cool guy. And so I thought I just, you know, I, I would have loved to have to have kept this as an all Canadian <laughs> recording because, you know, I mean, I, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I'm also a Canadian citizen now. And, you know, I love living in Canada. It's an amazing country. I'm very proud to be a Canadian. I'm very proud yeah. to be an American as well. But, you know, this is where I live and I want to try to work with. You know, with the folks. Yeah, support, yeah. support it. Yeah. The, uh, but, you know, on that tune, I thought this just, Todd would just, just, he would nail this. And so, you know, he did, of course, because he's Todd. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that I mentioned Eric Wright, who plays cello on the Cowgirls. Yeah. Yeah, you did. I hope I'm not missing anybody. God, that would be really embarrassing. I, I'm, I'm looking at the list. I, th I think you got them all. You you mentioned Chris Cool, the the fantastic oh, yeah. Clawhammer banjoist. Yeah, you um, know, you did uh, mention him. Chris is a really. It's another man. I got to find a, another thesaurus because I'm running out of words. He's a very cool guy. I remember, I've known Chris for many years, and it's kind of funny. Is that one time several years ago we were teaching at a camp in the interior of BC together, 
And uh, mm-hmm. I really wanted to learn how to play claw hammer banjo. And so I ran into him at dinner and said, hey, man, can I, can I get an hour of your time? And, and so he, he sat down and he did his best to try to teach me, but it just did not take. <laughs> I just can't figure <laughs> it out. And uh, so, so anyway, so I, I had that tune and I thought, wow, this would be really great to have. I, I think this would sound good with, with two banjos. And, you know, of course, it's Chris. So, of course, it did sound good. Well, how, however it all came together, it turned out really great, and it's it's a very enjoyable listen. Great work, and I'm happy to hear all these stories about it. It's, it's yeah, you know, really Keith, cool, I, get, cool getting a peek behind the curtain. Yeah, Keith, I I, I really appreciate that, and um, I fully understand that you're going to have to edit this because we've been talking for a long time. So you know, include well, what you, you know, think is the cool. Sometimes the coolest part about podcasting is that you're not on a page count. You're not on a time limit i can do whatever i want so yeah i'll i'll cut it out as necessary but um you know you you've had some great insights into this so i'm going to keep as much of that as i can well you know uh one one other thing that 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 i would like to add and you can keep this or chop it as you see fit but um and i'm just speaking to to my experience but i found that you know when i started to learn how to play i was and still remain a huge Earl Scruggs fan. And mm-hmm. um, I can remember, you know, I told you that I put my banjo down for 10 years and then picked it up again. I remember I get getting my playing back together and, you know, playing along with Foggy Mountain banjo for eight hours a day. I mean, literally. And I would play in bands. And I remember one time in particular playing at this festival in Washington State. And we got off stage and someone came up to me and said, man, you sound just like Earl Scruggs. And it was okay. like, it was just a, such a huge compliment because he is one of my biggest heroes. But after I got to thinking about it, I realized that's really something because that person, this was in like 95, that's really something that I need to to examine because that person at that point in time could have driven to Seattle, gone to SeaTac Airport, bought a ticket to Nashville driven out to the suburb that Earl Scruggs lived in, gone up to his door and knocked on the door and actually heard Earl Scruggs play the banjo. And so for me to be thinking that sounding like a, a copy of Earl Scruggs was a good thing, probably not the best approach. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And you, so you, it, you take, you take the compliment, but it's, it's not, it doesn't mean that that's your goal. Right. And so, but it, but it really, really brought into focus the need to, or my need to start doing what I thought sounded right. Kind of like what Earl mm-hmm. does. He does what he thinks sounds right. And I'm not trying to p- compare myself to him at all, but just the, the idea behind it, which is don't play your music from your heart through someone else's filter. I think that yes, that's it's more about the approach and the philosophy than the actual execution and the the notes. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's also about playing something that is you instead of doing your best to try to sound like somebody else. Because I don't think Earl Scruggs ever did that. He might have when he was listening to Snuffy Jenkins years ago. But I'm sure after a while, he just said, well, this is what sounds right to me. And, you know, that's why when you listen to Earl play, even when he makes mistakes, it sounds right. I mean, like there's that classic example of the Carnegie, or, or the, yeah, the Carnegie Hall where they're playing, I don't know, what is it? down the road or something and he goes up to play that up the neck backup lick and he's off a fret i mean it's clearly a mistake now every day and sunday too i go to see my pearly blue for he had rooster crow see me headed down the road and yet because he's doing it with such authority and such conviction that you just kind of scratch your head and go, yeah, man, that actually kind of works. <laughs> you know, I mean, when it's, yeah. he just messed up, he just messed up, but it's anyway, sorry, I'm, I kind of going but all tangent on you. He messed up. He messed up with attitude is the point. Yeah. Total. I mean, totally just like, this is the way it goes. And it's, and it's not coming from a place of arrogance or, the the desire to dominate or you know any sort of negative thing it's just this is what this is what's right you know and and mm-hmm. and, and, and and i think that it's a really good attitude to kind of cop when you're playing you know bluegrass music is that it's again it's not this from this thing of well i'm going to play louder and faster than you it's like that's not it at all it's this is you know this is how it sounds this is how it goes and just own it and play it Anyway, good stuff, Nick. I, I, <laughs> Lots of tangents. Wise words to live by. No, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to soak it all in. Hopefully, I can take advantage of some of your advice myself. Yeah. Well. Um, hey, tell, t- tell people where to to find your disc and find your music and find your tour dates if there are ever tour dates again. Hopefully okay. someday. Yeah. So uh, I have a website, which is Nick Hornbuckle, N-I-C-K-H-O-R-N-B-U-C-K-L-E.com. It's my website and there's a store on there. And mm-hmm. I sell um, the first album, the 12 by 2. I sell the 13 or so. I have two old time fiddle tune books that I sell. And um, there's a couple other books. Uh, uh a tab book for the 12 by two and a tab book for the 13 or so. And I think that both of those are download only. I can't remember. I just, I just now put a single up on my site, which is kind of exciting. It's a, it's a recording I did of that crowded house tune. Don't dream it's over. Have, have you had a chance to listen to that? You, you know what I did? And I only, after I listened to it, did I realize that I had seen the video, uh, oh floating around online. So I, I had already heard it and I didn't even realize it. Right, but, right, yeah. right. No, that's it's it's a very cool sound. Well, you know, I mean, I I you know, I mean, that's that's kind of my my era. I guess maybe I'm a little bit older than that, but not by much, but the idea of of trying to play something on the banjo that people go, "Wow, oh, I didn't know you could do that." I thought banjo was all <laughs> fast in the key of B, you know, with you know, kind of sketchy lyrics. It's no, it, you yeah. can do anything Twangy, on the banjo. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it sort of, with the response I've gotten from that, it's, it's encouraged me to go more in that direction. I'm working on other tunes that, you know, that have nothing to do with bluegrass. It just kind of sound good on the banjo, I think. So, okay. So, uh, and then, uh, through my website, nickhornmuckle.com, 
Uh, there's the jaybirds.com. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that's under my name. Uh, I have another YouTube channel under my name. It's called Nick Hornbuckle, not banjo, that actually has a clip of the rock and roll band I was in uh, in 1990 playing oh, in cool. Seattle. It's put some headphones on, man. It's 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 pretty good. I'm pretty pretty proud of that. Um, oh yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, and on my Nick Hornbuckle YouTube page, there's a bunch of uh, videos of me playing various fiddle tunes. I have an Instagram page, which is, you know, <laughs> I have a, my, what? my daughter is 20 and she's just, you know, as all people my age are, I'm just kind of, you know, I don't quite have the social media thing together, but I try. You and me both, <laughs> man. You and me both. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I haven't posted other than the, the crowded house tune. I haven't posted anything on YouTube in a while. Um, I think that mostly it's because I've been this, this whole, you know, what's been happening in the world's just been really heavy and dark and kind of, it's not very inspiring and that's, that's pretty lame, but so I'm kind of slowly getting back into it. You know, I've been playing all along, but it's just, there's just, it feels like there's just, so little that I can do. It's very discouraging. And so, so what I'm trying to do is to put stuff out into the world. That's, uh, you know, uplifting or positive. That's my little contribution. Yeah. Just a break from, uh, <laughs> our, our weird reality. Oh man. You know, I mean, uh, like I say, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in Yakima. I lived in Washington state my whole life. And, I, I just look at what's happening and it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I don't know what to do. Yeah. It, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. And then it, and then it, it feels selfish if you try to enjoy playing for a bit, you feel like there's so much you're, you need to be worried about or so much better, you know, try to be productive with your time and it's hard it, to let yourself uh, be inspired. But I, I think we just have to somehow. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember being in, in high school and reading, you know, it was one of the books we had to read was Voltaire's Candide and, uh -huh. you know, just kind of tend your garden, man. And I, I, and I realized that that's just such a cop out, but the, 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 the kind of, at least as far as I can see, the kind of reality is, is that, that's a pretty big statement, tend your garden. That means, you know, just really um, in, in high detail, pay attention to how you interact with the world. And that's where I think that it kind of starts. And mm -hmm. if I can put something out there that gives people, you know, like you say, relief or uh, just a little bit of happiness or joy or whatever it is. I'll do it because that's, that's what I can do. <laughs> you know, I'm not yeah. the president. I'm not the, the, the prime minister of Canada. I, I don't own Amazon. I don't own Google. <laughs> you know, there's just, I'm just a dude. <laughs> well, if the, if the banjo doesn't work, maybe the coffee will, right? <laughs> the coffee has been very interesting because it's very interesting being in a line of work where it's basically legalized drug addiction, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, get, hook them hook young and uh, keep them coming back, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and, I've, and I have definitely fallen prey to the, the number one rule, which is 
you don't you don't sample your own stuff, which man, oh, sorry, no. sorry, oh, no. been there, done it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. We'll, it's we'll it's, it it's good coffee. <laughs> What's your favorite origin? Oh, that's such a that's such a difficult question to answer because it really, in terms of a, of, a, of a single origin, I really like uh, Ethiopian. It's Hmm. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a dumb thing to say because, you know, obviously that's where coffee comes from. And I was reading up on it a while ago and this one source said that there are over 7,000 genetically distinct varieties of coffee in Ethiopia alone. So it's. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you say Ethiopian. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you mean by that? So it's. Right. But the. The business that I work for, if I can just say, it's called Creekmore's Coffee, and um, they have several different varietals that we roast and several sort of proprietary blends. And um, if I'm not doing a, a single source varietal, it's I'm going to say that I really like their espresso blend, which is it's just I don't drink alcohol anymore, but I used to love to drink Guinness, and this mm -hmm. espresso has some parallel to a good pulled Guinness. Huh. Interesting. It, oh, it's, it's so good. It's the best, but you know, oh, again, if, check that out. if you want to, I can probably send you a bag, but they don't, they don't ship to the States and they really, it's mostly on Vancouver Island, but I mean, I'm happy to send you a bag. Just send me your address and I'll just ship you a bag. That's an offer. I, that's an offer I don't expect to refuse. So yeah, you'll, <laughs> you'll hear from me about that. Cool, man. Well, uh, right. I hope that this sort of ticked all your boxes, and it's, it, yeah, it, it sure did, man. I was I was sitting down thinking we were going to be done in about a half an hour, but I'm only too happy to to hear as much as you have to say about all this stuff. I, I really uh, <laughs> in, enjoy the music. I think you have really good insights. So, no, it, it's great. I enjoyed it. Great. Cool. Well, uh, thanks, Keith. I appreciate it, and I'm just going to stop my recording, and that doesn't mean that we have to yeah, stop cool. talking. Congratulations, you made it all the way through an episode that I thought was going to be 20 or 30 minutes. But I hope you agree that once you can get someone like Nick Hornbuckle talking about his creative process and giving you some insight into those original tunes that he writes, I'm not going to stop him from, from doing that. And I'm going to record it and I'm going to let you hear it too. So thanks again to Duncan Brady for being today's Patreon supporter. If you haven't checked out the Patreon page yet, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And I'm so grateful for all of you who have checked it out. And that's really what keeps this podcast going. You can also get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. I'd be really curious if any of you have opinions on this new freshly picked series. It's kind of a new thing that I'm rolling with. And I think so far so good, but I, I'd love to hear your opinions too. So the next episode will probably return to more of a standard interview format, but uh, there's going to be plenty more of these coming up. Stay tuned and I'll see you then.